0: Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Beau. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century?
1: Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on Kicking Kicking and and Streaming! Okay, uh... Sorry, what?
0: Yeah, let's do that again. I don't think I heard you. And maybe if you can
1: Well, I thought we agreed we were going to come in strong on this one.
0: Yeah, strong is right, but you know, bring it in from your diaphragm. Diaphragm. Lower your register and you don't need to bellow.
1: Listen, but I don't know how you bellow, but where I come from, we really put our backs into it.
0: Okay, all this and more on kicking and streaming. Chris. <sighs> kicking and streaming.
1: Hey everybody! Welcome back to Kicking and Streaming. It's been a little while. It's, been, uh, it's, been, it's been, a, been a few months here while we've been prepping for our first official season. Technically season two. Uh, what would you say that, Bo? We're on, we're on season two now. They didn't know it before, but now here's the plot twist. They were listening to season one the whole time. Speaking of plot twists, we're doing mysteries today. That's right. The, the, the history's oldest genre, the murder
0: mystery history's oldest genre there is a detective story in some versions of the bible in the that's apocrypha true. that's often called the first one it's a story of i can't even remember it it's it's not the it's not the bible i grew up with not my bible um, <laughs> not my bible but yeah yes here and we're here in season 2 as you say and i'm coming at you from uh, oh goodness about 3,500 miles south here in, in Mexico City.
1: Uh, Mexico City, that's right.
0: Listeners of the show may be aware that I managed to, to snatch up one of our, our guests. <laughs> <laughs> guest of episode, what was it, 16? That's right. We right. got hitched. I've followed her down to Mexico City for a spell. So here we are. And there you are at uh, Kicking and Streaming HQ. That's right. It's nice and empty over here. A framed photograph of me sitting in my chair, I assume. <laughs> there in the studio.
1: Yep, yep. It's as if you never left. As long as we're running off with our guests, I, I, I wanted to introduce Bo. I've got Jennifer Aniston as our guest host today.
0: Okay, yeah. Fingers crossed.
1: All right. So listen, speaking of murder. And Jennifer Aniston. And Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> uh, I assigned you a film. I didn't want to confuse our, our listeners, so I picked something nice and simple. Uh, it's called Murder Mystery. I figure it's not too tough to, to mix up what this episode's about.
0: I would say with this movie, if you know that it's an Adam Sandler movie and you know that it's called Murder Mystery, I mean, the marketing is essentially done. You don't need to release any synopses, any posters. Everybody knows exactly what's going on. (laughs) It's an Adam Sandler film. It's a murder mystery. Charles is inviting us to spend the weekend with him on a yacht. Crushing the party with civilians. You're an actress, right? Grace Babble. Oh! I am Nick Spitz.
1: This is my wife, Allison. I can't believe... Uh, Audrey. I'm Audrey. I said
0: Audrey! (laughs)
1: you ever fool around on a boat. I just lay here, and the boat does all the work. Yeah, this is quite a flick. Adam Sandler has got a a pretty big backlog of Netflix original films, and I knew that we would
0: eventually have to have to tap in. And this may not be the last one. It's a little hard to know exactly what. What's going on in the uh, on Netflix's bank statements and how many people are actually tuning in. But according to Netflix, their Adam Sandler films have been like the Adam Sandler films of old that went to the the, to the cinema. They've been hits. They're popular. Yeah. Big audience There's a big audience for this man and his movies. That's true. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, ah, I guess we have to take Netflix at their word, but then they
1: they keep signing him on for more deals. After making this, he netted another $250 million four-movie deal, so it's clearly they do think that he is worth the money. Pretty wild stuff. It, this, this makes, I think, looking over his, his Netflix filmography, we've had, let's see, Hubie Halloween, that's one. We've had uh, Murder Mystery. We've had The Week Of... Goodness, Sandy Wexler, The Do-Over. There's, oh gosh, The
0: Wrong Missy. There's so many. Ridiculous Six, right? Ridiculous Six, which I'm... I think that's the only one that I'd actually really heard of, of all of these.
1: Yeah, I mean, he churns them out like nobody's business. I feel like it's at least one a year. And it's, you know, a lot of people have said that his Netflix deal is basically he's just getting paid to film his vacations with his friends. Yeah, I mean, who am I to fault somebody for, for making money, having fun, without hurting anybody, really?
0: I mean... Especially if, whilst they're having fun, audiences are having fun, too. We'll get into our own thoughts, obviously, but as we've established here, it's clearly a hit. And Indeed. before we go any further, maybe should we launch into the synopsis? You got that uh, that old stopwatch ready for me?
1: We should, Bo. and I, I spent hours, nay, days... Honing and perfecting this
0: summary so that it will be finished in exactly 30 seconds. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean, this summary? This one's mine. Uh, Of course, I'm prepared for the other one too, but (laughs) what are you talking about? (laughs) Listen. Are you
1: joking? (laughs) (laughs) We'll cut out this part about you asking if I'm joking, but the answer is no, I'm not joking. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Life imitates art. <laughs> what have you done? Well, that's fine. I'll just write my summary while you tell yours. <laughs> that's fine.
0: <laughs> hey, yeah, I've got 30 seconds to say my summary and you've got 30 seconds to write yours.
1: <laughs> Listen, uh, it's happens. been a while. <laughs> it's been a while since our last episode. I could have sworn. Well, uh, I'm sure that it will be as good as the summary I have written for Murder Mystery that now no one will ever hear. <laughs> All right, Bo. S- say what you gotta say. Um, All right, you got the stopwatch ready? I have the stopwatch ready. What are you
0: gonna give me, a, a go or a what?
1: All right, no, that's It's one, two, three, go. And then you go when I say, uh, go. I'm ready.
0: Okay, here we go. One, two, three... Adam Sandler is Nick Spitz, a relaxed, if somewhat nebbish, police officer with aims of becoming an inspector. But he can't hack the detective exam, unbeknownst to his wife, to whom he has been lying for months. When again trying to impress her, he splurges on the trip to Europe he's been promising for 15 years, Along the way, the economy couple have a run-in with an affluent aristocrat who invites them on a pleasure cruise where they will encounter a murder mystery, in which circumstances and foolhardiness will entangle Mr. and Mrs. Spitz with a desperate array of nefarious wealth chasers and suspicious rogues."
1: Lovely, Beau. Just lovely. That was a lovely description Unfortunately, it was 39.73 seconds. Wait, 39 seconds? Uh-huh, we hit thirty seconds about when you uh said the the other the other rich eccentrics on the yacht.
0: I was clocking it in at twenty nine so I tried to go slow. <laughs> you went too slow. Is there time dilation in Mexico with my taking an uh ex a whopping extra nine seconds maybe 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 you got a chance on this one maybe this this Indeed. could be your first victory this could... <laughs> my big break, thanks, Bo. I knew you were throwing me yeah. a bone there. Ah, so, yeah, that's, so, yeah, that's it. It's as, as far as setups go for a murder mystery, I'd say it's just about as good as, good as any other. It's a little bit of a drawing room thing going on, it, it's a comedy. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. Death on the Nile, which is about to be released, if it gets out of its imbroglio with all the, uh, oh goodness, the scandals surrounding our, our good friend, the star of Rebecca, whose name is suddenly escaping me
1: Army Hammer. Army Hammer.
0: Of friend course. of the Want podcast, Army Hammer. Yeah,
1: friend of the pod. Well, <laughs> friend of the podcast that's, that's and alleged
0: not... cannibal, Army Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh... Anyway, if it gets out of its <laughs> out of its in- entanglement with with Army Hammer, there's a new version of Death on the Nile coming out. A popular Agatha Christie story, one that I would say is not a million years removed from what Adam Sandler's doing here. We do have a murder mystery that takes place on a boat in a foreign clime. That's with, true. Uh, lots of People who who all have you know means and motive in the in the style of these, but Bo- both mm-hmm. movies that we'll be talking about today don't exactly spring far outside the the genre that they're in. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. murder mystery. We, we're given a, a, a bevy of characters, and they they all have, we all we have a reason to suspect every every one of them. Indeed.
1: Everyone except for our, our lead characters, of course, Nick and Audrey Spitz, mm. they are, right, they are spotless as the day is long. I think, as far as their m- potential for murder, and I, I, that's actually a fairly big plot point that I want to get into, maybe maybe in a little bit about their entanglement in all of this murder and mayhem. Yeah, it's kind of funny because as the film started. I remember writing down in my notes about 20 minutes into it. I was like, "What, what is the point of all this fanfare and prelude?" It felt kind of like to me, like uh, before you know, before your average murder mystery, we just spend 20 minutes following one of the random schlubs who's going to show up at the mansion. You know, it's just sort of see how unhappy his marriage is and what what brought him to this 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 dinner party at the mansion in the first place, kind of thing, and. Mm -hmm. Nick is not exactly, Nick Spitz is, he's not exactly a character that I enjoy spending a lot of time with, but I will say that this does feel like a film that's made for people who have heard of Agatha Christie, and it doesn't go far beyond that, and that's me! So, I know Agatha Christie exists, I know she's written some great books, so I was able to follow this just fine. As I was watching it, I was thinking like, oh, this is a pretty classic Adam Sandler joint. But then I also realized that it, it wasn't written and directed by him. It was written and directed by other people. So this is, he's basically just here to act. Yeah. Which surprised me because a lot of Sandler's token
0: humor is in the film. Yeah, it certainly seems to have his stamp on it. I mean, I, I don't even, I, I was I noticed that as well just by glancing at the credits. But I couldn't tell you... Who made the film? Mm-hmm. And that's that's not just sloppiness on my part. It's your job to research this one. That's right. Um, I'm glad you I, haven't looked. I couldn't tell you. I'll, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you who made the film. And I'll tell you another thing. I I doubt that anybody could, because Adam Sandler is such a one that this is an Adam Sandler movie. I mean, people will remember that Jennifer yeah. Aniston is in it, and there's familiar faces in the cast, but we've talked about how it doesn't stray outside the murder mystery genre but i suppose it's like we said in the beginning it is also an adam sandler film which is a genre in and of itself
1: mhm mhm
0: yeah it's yeah it's kind of this melding that goes on it's did you get the impression at
1: all with the dialogue that some of it is improvised that was an impression i got it's and it's something where i've noticed this before in in other films where there's there's a slight improvisational tilt to some of the dialogue but it's many times it's not well-known improvisers doing the improvising it's just actors and you get dialogue that feels kind of meandering and a little bit uh kind of kind of the first thought that comes to your head when you try to think of what, what's a line i could say that makes me sound like an unsatisfied woman in a failing marriage kind of thing and it's it, there there's their conversations on the airplane en route to europe and in their house and stuff, it just feels very, very. It, it feels like it wasn't written. It feels like it was just kind of made up on the spot, but not in a fun way.
0: <laughs> well, th- there are there are plenty of Adam Sandler's lines uh, that is Nick Spitz, which which have the kind of Sandler stamp on them, and they're clearly jokes that, And some of them some of them could be improv. Some of them have obvious setups to get us to the joke. What I was actually remarking is how absurdly pat and bizarrely broad <laughs> some of the <laughs> some of the lines were kind of going the other direction. I'm I'm thinking specifically, the one that, that leaps to my mind mm. is when we're first introduced to to Audrey, Jennifer Aniston's character, when she and she's a, a hairdresser and she's there dressing the hair of various women and the women are having are having gal talk. And and I'll get into some of that later. I think if we if we have time. But the line that jumps immediately to me is they're 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 complaining about men and their husbands and so on and so forth. And
1: I mean, he used to leave me like cute little mixtapes, little love notes in the bathroom. Love notes are dead. My husband wants to have sex. He just texts me the eggplant and donut emoji.
0: Eggplant and donut. Oh, he's the eggplant. More like a fingerling potato. It's almost funny in the sense that it's it's so very ridiculously broad and yet on the nose that it it almost becomes funny in that they actually decided to put it in there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's actually for me that's become fairly representative of. Again, I know that Sandler didn't write the dialogue himself, but it's it's something that I have come to expect from Adam Sandler films: Mm. dialogue that is "quote unquote" funny. By virtue of being "quote unquote" funny dialogue, it's just like it's like, haha. Yeah. I I I said, "Dick, please laugh." Like uh, it's kind of like, ha ha The they're at it again, and that that's yeah, something. Yeah, that... or,
0: or even the or even the things like Nick Spitz is trying to. Well, you know, it's being shown that he's not much of a husband by the standards of this movie and the women in this movie, mm-hmm. and he's. Purchasing a gift card, an Amazon gift card, for their fifteenth wedding anniversary, fifty dollar gift card, and yeah, and then uh, they're they're at dinner with some friends, and his his buddy's wife, who doesn't like him, makes the comment of, "Oh, I had you pegged as an as an Amazon gift card <laughs> uh, kind of <laughs> kind of gifter, like that's the kind of gift you would give," and it's one of those ah yeah that's it's funny because. That happened. We saw that. We saw that. He, 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 he did buy an Amazon gift card.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the kind of humor that really requires no explaining. I would like to meet the person
0: who needs to have these jokes explained to them.
1: <laughs> it's very, very self-evident
0: humor. So, so like I said, broad and, you know, broad and entertaining. This is the sort of film that if, if you're into it, I imagine you can watch it with any sort of age demographic.
1: Mm-hmm, and
0: mm-hmm. and everybody's got a chance of, if not relishing in the humor, at least understanding it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, I mean, to to kind of set the scene here a little bit, let's let's get into the characters, if it's all right with you. i would kind of like to give our give our listeners a little an idea of who we're dealing with here. So obviously, we've got Adam Sandler playing Nick Spitz and Jennifer Aniston playing his wife Audrey Spitz. The the characters, to me. We're kind of like a living boomer comic, you know those things where it's like ah, wife bad, husband bad. He he forgot our anniversary, or he's not doing. He didn't take me out, or something. And it's ah, my wife expects too much of me, and it's 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 Mm. one of those things where it's like I'm not gonna say that culture has improved since since the time that people, Jennifer Aniston's and Adam Sandler's age, were getting married at a younger age or whatever. I'm sure the climate is roughly the same, but I would like to think that we've moved past, as a society, the kind of cliched trope of like, ah, oh, wife bad, oh, husband disappointing. Oh, like, it's just, it's it's such well-trodden territory, and the dynamic between them doesn't really bring a whole lot of new stuff to the table. But one thing in particular I thought was interesting we, we, get this, we get this thing up up at the start where, where Adam Sandler's character, Nick, is, he's leaving the station with his buddy and he's talking about how he failed his third detective exam. Got the results back from the detective exam. You failed again? This is why I never took that test. All the anxiety and disappointment. At some point, you have to realize you have hit your ceiling and just give up. You know, you should go around and speak at schools. That was very inspiring. I should. Kids need to hear this shit. I don't get it, man. I know all the answers. I just freeze under pressure. And so I'm thinking, okay, well this is kind of setting the scene for a guy who could be a good detective, but he's too neurotic. He's he's too anxious and nervous, and maybe bashful, or he doesn't have like what it takes to to really put his foot down on something. But then like three minutes later, he's in a grocery store and he calls out some some kid for shoplifting, and you gotta tell him about the stuff in your backpack. Mind your own business, man.
0: I'm paying for this. I
1: like your sneakers. They must be expensive. Is that where you can't afford the Monster Energy drink or the Lemon Hot Cheetos? Hang on there. Hey, let go of me, man.
0: I can't believe I was right.
1: Keep your mouth shut. I'll mess you up, old man. Old oh, man? Oh, my God. First of all, I should throw you in jail. You're just for calling me old man, but you bring that stuff back, I'll let you go, because I'm late for dinner and I'm hungry as shit. Go ahead. And he ends up coming at it very confidently and very smoothly. And I'm thinking, like, is, yeah. is this the same guy? Is this the same guy who freezes up trying to answer questions about a detective exam? And throughout the rest of the film, really, his character doesn't really have the defining traits that I thought he would have at the start of the film. He's, he's he, he seems like a fairly
0: competent... Detective, and he seems like a fairly confident cop, I was surprised by that too i mean he he's relaxed and he's kind of got i mean he's he's a bit of a schmuck, but at the same time he's not yeah like he he's he's not really concerned about it, like he's exactly. sort of impervious because he's so relaxed like he's, yeah, he's so very... at ease, and that actually ends up i think for the comedy that this is and for the absurdity of the plot that we're given. Uh, he was much more competent as a detective than I expected him to.
1: Yeah, I was expecting kind of a Jacques Clouseau kind of thing, you know, sort of like a bumbling and incompetent or or awkward or uncomfortable. Maybe the sight of a dead body makes him vomit, you know, like something where it's something that would run counter to the idea that he wants to be a detective. But really, it, it seems like him failing to be a detective is specifically just to make him a liar and a failure. Which, you know, both of those factor into the story, him being a failure and then lying about his failure. But as far as a reason why his character would fail, I don't really see it. He's, yeah, he's not exactly an alpha male type. Like you said, he's very schlubby and kind of not not a very comforting presence. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, the, the murder happens when, when, when the aforementioned, when the titular murder mystery begins. He, you know, everyone's freaking out and he sees the body and he's just holding some entrees and he's like, all right, well, uh, nobody touched the body and, uh, you know. Oh,
0: geez, will you listen to my husband? He's a detective. Yes, yes. What should we do, Mr. Officer? Well, for starters, let's stop removing
1: and reinserting the murder weapon into the victim's chest. In fact, let's stop touching the body altogether. Uh, mm-hmm. Rifling through the pockets of the corpse counts as touching. We have to preserve the crime scene. Uh, Captain Wong, is there any way you can lock off this place? Yes, of course.
0: So we should then start questioning the suspects. Suspects?
1: We're not questioning anybody. Wong, when you finish locking up here, you bring me the key. Then your radio Interpol, tell them we'll meet him at the docks in Monaco. In the meantime... I'm going to check the shrimp out a little closer. Set up a parameter, lock down all the doors, da-da-da-da-da. And he just, he's like very, very cavalier, very laissez-faire to this whole thing, which I feel like that that kind of robs the film of its potential contrast of having... A, you, you get like a serious murder mystery situation where a man was killed on his yacht and there's all these socialites and, and wealthy benefactors who are all champing at the bit. And then you could have this, I mean, they do kind of have the fish out of water thing going for it. They try to sort of, they almost kind of make them seem like a Midwestern couple at times, you know, where it's like, mm-hmm. she like. there's a part where a character w- that we'll get into gives kind of a dark, tortured past, this backstory, and then they say they want to record a voice memo of it because it's such a good, such a good line. And I see. find isolated place, create confusion, make sure there are others with motive. I
0: told him how to kill the man.
1: Holy shit! This is incredible! Thank okay, so the Thank Colonel you. killed Malcolm and Toby got over it. lost love. Got it. This is the insane. Perfect, Will you just perfect. say all of that one more time? But yeah. can you say it from the top? She's gotta, I just gotta do the voice number. So how do I do? It uh, just, ask just Ask Siri. Okay. Uh, Swipe it out. I, I Did say it say Siri? I memo would like, Turn it on. I gotta turn the thing. And. There's little moments like that where it's like, oh, right. They're not really supposed to be here. You know, like they, they don't really belong in this setting. But the only thing that really establishes that are these little these little bits, these little side convos where they're kind of they're like, ah, we're just we're just normal folks.
0: You know, what, what, gee whiz. They do a lot to stress the the class divide. I think, you know, mm-hmm. the, this is this is the ultra wealthy. You know, these are the sort of like these are the cozy. This is a cast of a, a cozy mystery. You know, these yeah. are aristocrats, wealthy people with inheritances and all this and on their yachts and their fine clothes and with their their British accents and so on. And then you have Jennifer Aniston coming out of coming out of Friends and and playing. Yeah, that's sort of like uh, down to earth girl. And then Adam Adam Sandler doing his his whole shtick. And mm-hmm. yeah, they're they're clearly they're straining their budget. They make it clear just to just to get to to Europe and they're meant to be taking a bus tour on a bus that is shown to be you know quite horrific and so they're definitely fish out of water in the in in the class sense
1: yeah and they do they do manage to extract some humor out of that out of that class contrast but i feel like there there's quite a few missed opportunities as far as the potential for an even bigger hot and cold juxtaposition of you know i I think about a guy who's a failed detective who is the only guy on the scene who can solve a mystery that that to me sounds rife with with potential for humor and mishaps and whatnot yeah, his failures as a detective really don't they don't factor into his demeanor at all they do factor into the story but not into the way he carries himself, which ends up feeling very much like. Like he's phoning it in. Uh, you know, Adam Sandler's kind of just playing. He's just kind of playing Adam Sandler, really, which I, I, I know that, you know, it's, it's not. A, it's, it's a big ask of somebody like Adam Sandler who tends to goof around and have fun. But this was released the same year as Uncut Gems, which I personally haven't seen yet. I, I should. But people say it's kind of a tour de force for Sandler. They say it's some of the best acting they've seen from him.
0: Yeah, I, I also haven't seen Uncut Gems, but I kept thinking of Uncut Gems, I should say. I said Jim. Oh. Uncut Jim. Uh, <laughs> Punch Drunk Love. Punch Drunk Love, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen Punch Drunk Love? I have. Yeah, we yeah, watched it for our um, movie club way back. Oh, that's right. That's right, of course we did. Yeah. Which, yeah, showed uh, certainly that putting Adam Sandler under the right direction, so to speak, makes for a very compelling and watchable character. I mean, he, mm-hmm. I think that he carries that film very well and I'm very convinced of the person that he is in that movie so I was, yeah I, was, I mean Whereas, as you say in, th- in this one it is a little bit more perplexing to to figure him out
1: yeah it, yeah it, fe- it it feels kind of like he showed up on set with the same sort of attitude that his detective character has he's like all right I'm here let's do this so as far as protagonists go not particularly compelling, but they are helped a lot by a fun-supporting cast. You've got Luke Evans as Charles Cavendish, this eccentric, seemingly perpetually drunk billionaire who's resentful of his uncle for stealing his fiancée, like classic simmering murder mystery setup, you know, he's got...
0: Yeah, and he's, he's bringing in, so the, the ultimate suavite, you know, he's very... Yeah. Just, just the he, he typifies exactly rakish, urbane aristocrat.
1: And it's it's kind of funny because this is this is another trope, I think, of some of Adam Sandler's other films, specifically the ones where he plays a schlub. He doesn't always pay he doesn't always play kind of a schlubby loser, but whenever he does, he it seems like he is always quick to cast a counterweight to that. A character for his unsatisfied mm-hmm. wife to sort of lust after.
0: Wow. Charles Cavendish? Is that your real name? <laughs> I'm afraid so I mean, that sounds like it just fell right out of a mystery novel. And which character would I be?
1: Name like that, you'd have to be the bad guy.
0: Well, here's to the
1: bad guys. And mm-hmm. Luke Evans, as Charles Cavendish, fits that bill just fine. He's, yeah, very suave, very appealing. He, I kept thinking I would love to see him in a James Bond film, although he's probably as old as Daniel Craig at this point. I mean, at this point, he has caught up to Daniel Craig in age. <laughs> but he, yeah, he has, he does exude a lot of that kind of suave confidence. And of course, he's got that sweet, sweet English accent that we all love so much. We also meet many of his guests. We have Gemma Arterton, who is wonderful. She she plays Grace Ballard, a famous actress. We get Colonel Ulenga, played by John Connie. You may recognize him from Captain America Civil War and... You've got uh, the Maharaja, played by Adil Akhtar. He's a bit of a one-note gag character, which is kind yeah. of... That's another typical uh, staple of Sandler films. Same with uh, Juan Carlos Rivera, played by Luis G- uh, Gerard- Gerardo Mendez. Luis, Luis Gerardo Mendez.
0: Incidentally... Incidentally, a little, little insider trivia for the kicking and streaming fans out there. Uh-huh. Uh, he played he played my wife's husband <laughs> in a recent movie. <laughs> that's right. Half Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. that's Hey, yeah. for all of our listeners
1: who enjoy Six Degrees, we just threw you a bone there. You can now connect yeah, us there you go. To, to Adam Sandler.
0: You can through... now <laughs> connect us to this movie through our guest slash my wife. My it's wife's called... husband, not me, but the other one.
1: His character Juan Carlos is uh, a bit frustratingly one-note, which we you know we later find out there's a twist yeah. to that character as well, where the whole joke with him is that he doesn't speak English. So you're a race car
0: driver. Good, yes. <laughs>
1: wow, how do you how do you get into something
0: like that? Uh, number one, yes. You don't speak English, do you? <laughs> uh, very fast, very fast. Oh, welcome,
1: welcome. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't speak. He, uh, he, he, he mostly speaks in racing terms. He'll say yes, very fast after they ask him how his day is
0: going and whatnot. Or at one point, Halloween, because he sees That's someone right. in a costume. He sees a guy running away and says Halloween.
1: So you get, you get a lot of characters who are clearly there, essentially for Adam Sandler to point at and look at the camera and go, Huh? Huh? Check this craziness out. What is this? Which it's I personally find a bit tasteless. But I don't want to yuck someone's yum, you know, if they, if, you know, clearly people enjoy it, that's why he keeps doing it. And I would like to think that no one gets hurt, even though he does tend to like to play into cultural and and racial uh, stereotypes and whatnot. So maybe it is somewhat harmful, but who am I to say?
0: (laughs) We might get into, I I was curious about some of the ways that what we say, what do we, the term women in minorities is the one we use. Mm. And uh, I was kind of interested in the way that they're portrayed because I do think it's, I mean, there, there's the potential to be problematic, but maybe not. Like one doesn't get the, it all feels feels to me very relaxed and fun. I would be shocked. I mean, not to say that what one sees from the outside is a great indicator, but, you know, I'd be shocked to hear of any sort of, Inappropriate conduct happening on an Adam on an Adam Sandler film. Yeah, you know it, it seems like he's the kind of a guy, and these are the you know I bet everybody's having a good time.
1: Yeah, yeah, you do and get that think, impression. I
0: don't get any malicious intent from any of Adam Sandler's films, as as far from my type of fare as they as they are. I mm-hmm. I don't watch them and feel yeah that people are being shoved under the the bus as it were or yeah crue- cruelly made fun of or anything like that and that's and that's
1: that's i think that's one of the reasons why it's fairly easy to to overlook it's i, I, I would say instead of instead of offensive i would just call his humor insensitive which isn't not it's, i'd say it's putting it more delicately which i think it deserves you know it's yeah that you, you don't get the sense that he is specifically trying to make money off of or get laughs off of, like, hurting groups of people or anything like that. I think it's just the lens through which he sees the world, which isn't necessarily... a Yeah, it's not a malicious lens. It's not a mean-spirited
0: lens. He's just kind of like, ha-ha, different culture's different. I'm from America. This is weird. Yeah, if anything, I think that's where I think it is. I don't think it is necessarily... It's for Americans. I think that's what it is. It's not, not... No no minority group is is being trampled underfoot or made fun of people with this or that skin color it's making fun of people in other cultures and other countries in a sort of a like i say broad but but jovial way yeah i think that's what it is it's an american perspective at looking at the rest of the world, rather than looking at... But it accepts anyone who is American as American. Yeah. I don't think it's saying that because you're this type of American, or you look this way, you're a lesser American. But maybe it is kind of saying, oh, look at all these people from these other places, you know, that aren't <laughs> Americans, how silly they are. I sort of see there's almost kind of this
1: unofficial, unintentional reflection on your average... Your average American who hasn't experienced a lot of culture outside of, you know, the bubble that we have here in in America, where it's, you you get that kind of, it it reminds me a bit, actually, this is a a little bit of shared history with me and Bo. We used to take drama class together in high school. We had a teacher who, we, we were doing a play, and... Bo, you might correct me, but at one point she told—I think I think she was talking to you. She said, "Are you going to do an English accent or a regular accent?" Oh yeah. <laughs> Which you know, I mean, again, there's no hostility in how she said it. It's just that 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 kind of perspective of like, well, yeah, I'm from America. I'm the main character of the world, and uh, these other side characters are all kind of goofy, <laughs> but it's,
0: but it's good to have them here. This type of Americana, if you will, brings me to. One of the, the the lens, the most fascinating lens, I think, for me at which to look through which to look at this film as much as we could compare this to, you know, Death on the Nile or and, and even though it really and almost surprisingly doesn't go into spoof territory. Mm-hmm. It's very much playing with all of the tropes of a typical murder mystery of this sort of cozy, cozy or drawing room style murder mystery the kind that was if not invented then sort of perfected by agatha christie mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we have that we even have throw i don't know if it's just a coincidence that his name is is nick and we have the thin man and he was a famous detective always going around with his wife and he was called nick uh, maybe mm. that's too much but anyway uh, all these comparisons <laughs> uh, the one that actually fascinated me the most as i say was a comparison to a lesser-known Woody Allen film called Manhattan Murder Mystery. Mm. So not not just murder mystery, but Manhattan murder mystery. The prequel. And in that film, you have Woody Allen doing his shtick and going around New York, also sort of nebbish, certainly more neurotic and less relaxed than Adam Sandler is here. Mm-hmm. But similar characters in a way, and that they're kind of incompetent, yet ready with a a witty remark. Mm. And after I'd made that initial comparison, I was fascinated by just comparing these two auteurs, Woody Allen and Adam Sandler, and the films that they made. Because if you look at this movie, I mean, it even has just replace replace Adam Sandler with Woody Allen, and it actually... Makes sense. Like this is the cast of a Woody Allen movie. Mm. If yeah. you look at it, you know, Terence Stamp and Luke Evans and Jennifer Aniston, like I could see all of these people in a Woody Allen film. And <laughs> probably yeah. the the affair, i mean, the the lusting after Audrey's lusting after the Luke Evans character, Charles Cavendish, would have been played up a bit more, probably in a in a Woody Allen film following mm-hmm. his his formula. But a lot of the stamps are there. And then I thought, think about a couple of these lines, which were so sort of kind of deadpan and lackluster in the way that Adam Sandler delivered them, mm-hmm. that I, I felt they were kind of, I think they would have been funnier if Alan had delivered them. I'm I'm Ooh. thinking of a couple. So he says they're on the plane going economy, which is one of the jokes. You know, they're crammed in there. They don't get to all the ritzy first class treatment uh, Jennifer Aniston is reading a mystery novel. I don't want to give it away. It was the butler. The butler did it. <sighs> Never the butler did
1: it. I'm going to think uh, there are butlers. That's just a word created
0: for those goofy books you're addicted Richard, to.
1: Please, please, please. Shh. Yes. Leave my books alone. Okay, just let me read. <laughs>
0: it's it's a it's a pretty ridiculous, dumb, very Adam Sandler-esque joke. But. Yeah. I, I, I imagined Woody Allen delivering it and it, it takes on a new edge, you know, then it, suddenly it's <laughs> because then it's a bit more wry and winking. And then a little bit later, he says he, he finds his wife hobnobbing with with Charles in first class. Yeah. And he says, holy shit, this plane has a bar.
1: Sir, this is the first class lounge. I'm going to have to ask you to return to your seat. There's bars on planes now. Planes have bars now in first class. This is man. I wish my mother was still alive to say that she was an alcoholic, but a nice one. And
0: (laughs) the way he delivers it, it, it's just kind of, uh, just kind of goofy and weird. And but again, if I I thought if Woody Allen was saying that line, like that could be a line in a Woody Allen movie, like you know this neurotic oversharing character. Yeah. And it, uh, it became, I wouldn't be surprised if the, the makers of this film were inspired by this movie. And I mean, you look at it both, Mm -hmm. both Allen and Sandler have, they both put out, they're both very prolific. They put out a Mm -hmm. lot of movies. They both, uh, star in, in their movies, often playing, you know, very, very similar characters to, to the other films. And they both sometimes step out and play in somebody else's movie they both are very defined in their genre you know what a woody allen movie is and you know what an adam sandler movie is and That's true. in their yeah. way they're both very american but woody allen's films have a, a are definitely appealing to quote unquote the other crowd they mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. sophisticated you know there's a statue of woody allen in spain he's very he's beloved in europe his humor is going to be peppered with you know, intellectual references rather than the sort of lowbrow things that Adam Sandler is going to pepper his with. We've got two sort of—I don't even actually know if Adam Sandler is a is a New Yorker, but the, you've got like this—you've you, basically got these two Jewish auteurs that are kind of standing at different sides of the spectrum of of American films, and I. Really, I found that sort of a compelling way to think about this film.
1: Wow, yeah, that's actually that's a fantastic contrast. I almost feel like we we, we picked the wrong companion movie. Is that one in criteria? and we can quick, let's go we could watch that one and uh, <laughs> I know what
0: I'm watching next then. Yeah, and actually, as a quick side note, if if listeners are interested, i w- I call Manhattan murder mystery certainly not one of the most audacious or artistic. Of Woody Allen's movies, but one of the most neat and fun of his movies. It's a good one. Ah, very
1: cool. All right, little plug for Woody Allen. Come on our show, Woody. We we we're, we we're, uh, we got. Uh, we love your movies. So also um, to kind of round out this cast, actually, with with this film, we get someone with who, who carries with him a similar level of clout. Uh, we get Terrence Stamp, although it's very very different kind of clout, but. Um, he's playing Malcolm Quince, who is the, he is the body. <laughs> he is the guy who gets murdered about which there is a mystery. Yeah. And my word, Terrence Stamp, I could watch him deliver any line in any film. I first was exposed to him through Superman two, through, in which he played General Zod and Star Wars episode one, in which he played Chancellor Valorum, but he's got He's got a lot more under his belt than these kind of kitschy, fun B movies. He's he, he's he's done a lot of very serious acting. He's fantastic, and he's got he brings with him to this film whatever Luke Evans wasn't able to compensate for. Terrence Stamp definitely rounds it out and buffs out the corners of class in in the scene that he's in. He kind
0: of, I mean, he plays. You him. could say he brings. You could say he brings the Terence Stamp. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's Sorry, I just cool. wanted to get there before you. All right, all right. Um,
1: <laughs> so he comes on as this sort of miserly old billionaire. You know, it's, he's the classic, again, it's, they really don't mess with the tropes too much. He's the classic, miserable, hates everyone. Everyone hates him, but he's got a lot of money. His, one, of, one of his dying words is just like, you're all cut off.
0: I've spoken to all of you about your position in my will. I've thought long and hard about what each of you is truly worth. And I've come to this conclusion. You are all leeches, repugnant, blood fat, suckling on the tit of my good work for so many years. You repulse me.
1: You're not gonna get any more of my money. And then as he's about to sign a document that seals the deal, he gets murdered. The lights go out and there's gunshots and stabbing sounds and he's dead. I mean, we're, we're already probably like more than halfway through our discussion of this particular film, but that's, that's where our adventure begins. (laughs) You get, uh, so upon, upon the murder, you know, everybody is, is, you know, ah, they're freaking out. And of course, you know, one of them is lying. One of them actually killed him. And you get, uh, Nick Spitz, who's holding a giant plate full of cocktail shrimp and he's kind of casually doling out instructions for how to, how to manage the situation. And of course, in classic Sandler film style, you've got characters attempting to pull out the knife and then jam it back in when they realize they shouldn't have touched it. Should we pull it out? No, it's a foot-long knife. It's just like... Oh, Oh,
0: Oh,
1: you should have left the knife in for the po-po, Colonel Man! I'll put it back. Don't put it back. Again, it, it's one of those things where maybe this is just me being a comedy prude. I, I feel like the humor of that situation of this general, like this, this established colonel, this, this war hero character, the one who pulls out the knife and then jams it back in, I feel like he would know better <laughs> than to do that. So you get, a, you get a lot of comedy. It
0: feels like something that should have been done by the, by the Maharaja character or perhaps even by Audrey or someone like that
1: yeah, yeah. a character who's a little bit less self-assured, you know, there's and and, yeah, like the the comedy of this of the situation is very, very face value instead of there being any subtext that would kind of season and enhance the joke, which is, yeah, like getting a, getting a character who is who is freaking out and nervous and having them sort of trying to pull it out and then trying to put it back in again. but instead the joke is quite literally just like the knife was pulled back out and now it's being pushed back in and it's very gross and squishy and the, these he's stabbing him again and it it it's very very face value it's just funny because it's happening not because of who's doing it or why they're doing it or or any any other context a lot of the humor goes that that route route root wrote then we are introduced i it's it's interesting i thought maybe you I, you might have you might have felt this way too bo i'm not sure but from the outset, when uh, when Sandler's character, when Nick starts to try and organize people and sort of tells people to go to their rooms and lock up because there's a murderer on the boat, I'm thinking, okay, well, this whole mur- this whole mystery will take place on this boat here tonight. He mm. is he is the closest thing they have to a detective, so they're going to have to settle for him. That yeah. that that premise was intriguing to me. I was actually kind of excited to see how the rest of this story would go. But then very quickly, an actual detective arrives on the boat. Yeah, and. <laughs> Kind of throws water on that fire. The, the the rest of the fire gets put out by them leaving the boat the next morning before any mystery solving actually happens, really. I thought, you know, murder on a yacht. It's like murder on the Orient Express. They don't get off the train and then solve the mystery at some local town, you know. That's part of the appeal is the claustrophobia of being trapped in a you know, in an enclosed space. Yeah, that's space. often
0: what these things are. The Orient Express or Death on the Nile. It's all sort of a contrivance to, to make it so that the murder can't have been committed by some passerby or some assassin that we don't know about. You know, it has to mm-hmm. be has to be one of us here. And we're sort of left the tools that we have to figure this all out are contained right there. And the, the idea being that you can then kind of play around in your own mind and try and figure it out or. Yeah. Or, or 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 leap to where you think this is going to go and then be subverted. And that's kind of the whole the whole game of the thing.
1: It's Yeah, I feel like it kind of undercuts its own premise and its own potential for that source of comedy, drama, tension, excitement. A lot of that kind of gets pilfered a little bit by throwing
0: these other elements yeah. in. And basically going for the, the route of having a jaunt in, in France and Monaco so yeah. that we can get a lot of scenery and the and presumably so the actors can all have some fun and and so on <laughs> and so forth. Yeah, I think
1: that the Johnny Depp Angelina Jolie film The Tourist set the bar for for excess and extravagance for the sake of a fun vacation and this thankfully yeah, uh, doesn't go that far.
0: This this is a sort of movie by pointing out the nonsense elements of the plot. That's not a valid criticism because this movie makes no pretense about having a a a neat plot or even a plot that it's like all that important for you to follow. You know, it's very much just just a vehicle for some, for some jokes and, and some scenery. Uh, But uh, I did find probably the most contrived aspect of this movie is the idea that everybody suspects the, the spits and yes. that and that the detective is convinced that it's them i just found that they even for this movie it was so outlandish that i kept wondering why is this happening
1: yeah That's actually, that was the the thing I wanted to kind of talk about the most, really, with this film. This detective comes on, and you've got all these people who have means, motive, opportunity. Everybody at this party wanted him dead, except for Nick Spitz and his wife, Audrey. (laughs) Every other character you could imagine. And the the detective is instantly, you know, untrusting of, of Nick. Even though, again, the way that Sandler plays him, he's very, very much like a, Ah, what do you want? I didn't kill the guy. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, I want to get home. I'm I'm tired, you know. So you get yeah th- this this it's so bizarre to me because you have this this premise solving a murder mystery on a yacht where no one can leave and there's a killer who might kill again and you know I'm crap. I'm not a good detective, but I'm the only chance we have and stuff. That that right there, you could easily fill two hours with that. Instead, the the main source of the tension comes from as you say. Everyone's suspecting Nick Spence of being the killer, even though, again, there's no reason at all. There's and it was something that's kind of interesting. At first, you think that maybe maybe this suspicion is just born of pure ignorance, and they think, you know, we don't know you. You could be anybody. You could be a hitman for all we know. But then, right after he says a line like that, Inspector De La Croix, the det- the competent, quote-unquote, detective who comes on the scene. He says that they did a background search on Nick Spitz and found out that he's lying about being a detective. You wish me to believe you're innocent. Unfortunately, I do not believe liars. But I'm telling you the truth. And how long have you been lying to your wife? Excuse me? You did not think that we would investigate your background? Sergeant Nicholas Spitz, NYPD, failed his detective's exam three times. You are, uh, how I do you say, cop on the bit, not detective as you so claim. I believe Mr. Cavendish has provided accommodations for you at the Hotel de Savoie, so you won't be on the street. But mark my words, Officer Spitz, I will not rest until I prove that you committed these murders." But also, if you've done enough background checks to determine that he's not a detective, surely you also saw what a schlubby, unremarkable life this man has lived and how little motivation he would have to kill a random billionaire. I mean, he's a cop. (laughs) He's a a, a cop who has had the only mark against him as a cop is that he hasn't successfully become a better cop. Like, that's, as far as cops go, that's actually a fairly, it's a fairly moderate bar to set of like, he's a cop who doesn't have any dirt, you know? He's like, what reason do you have to think this guy would do anything, you know?
0: Well, it seems to me too that, you know, in addition to giving it some juicy things, perhaps for Nick and Audrey to react to, they sort of had to set it up this way because they chose, or at least this was the route they chose to go. Because they let it leave the boat, now we need a reason for him to continue to be wrapped up in this whole thing, and so that yeah. reason then has to be that for some reason they expect or they suspect him of being the the killer. And even though that makes absolutely no sense, that's what we're given to kind of as our to keep them tied in to all of this. Because yeah. he, he certainly doesn't have enough pluck tenacity or curiosity to be one of these detectives who's determined to solve the mystery just because it needs to be solved. Chase. Yeah, he, he's definitely the sort of guy that as soon as he could get out of this situation, he would just go ahead and do it. Yeah, And since they let him off the boat so he can get out of the situation, he's (laughs) got to be kept in it somehow. And so that means that we have to decide that he is one of the suspects. (laughs) It's
1: such a bizarre contrivance. But yeah, when you think about it from the sense of we wanted to spend some fun time abroad, suddenly it kind of comes together a bit. It's interesting. It kind of made me think of the film. It's a a movie that you and I both love, I think. I, I always think of it as Alfred Hitchcock's personal James Bond film, North by Northwest, with Cary Grant. Mm. Um, yeah. You get uh, Cary Grant is framed for a murder in a, in a way where you can tell that the person who actually did the murdering was very keen on him being blamed for the murder. He was set up as a patsy. The way that the man is killed... It's, it's in such a way that it looks very incriminating. You know, the guy dies with a knife and then Cary Grant in, impulsively reaches out and grabs the knife and pulls it out as the guy falls to his death. And a whole crowd sees that happen. And it's like, oh gosh, this looks bad. How on earth do you bounce back from yeah. this? In this one, yeah. Sandler's got a plate of shrimp and he's 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 standing far away he's got no reason there's n- the killer is probably thinking like wow what a happy coincidence i didn't expect this to yeah. go this well this is insane and it's it's almost like if north by northwest happened where this is the first scene in the film there's no other context there's no build up to this where he's being procedurally you know progressively set up and then the guy dies and gets stabbed and then Cary Grant standing 15 feet away just looking, and somebody points at him and says, he did it! And then that's the rest of the film, it's him trying to clear his name. It's a very, very strange dynamic, and the the contrivances don't stop there. There's that moment we referenced very slightly earlier, where Nick and Audrey are with Juan Carlos, and they are being held at gunpoint by Susie Nakamura, played by... Shioli Kutsuna, and uh we don't quite know what you know whether she's the killer or not. She, for a bit of context, we haven't introduced her character yet, she is the the former fiance of Luke Evans' character who left him to marry his uncle, the now dead Malcolm Quince. Uh she was the one who's going to inherit all of his wealth. So she holds these characters at gunpoint in an alley in public in, in the city, and she gets shot with a little blow dart and and starts to die. Nick and Juan Carlos give chase. They chase after the the robed Mysterious figure that shot the dart. And Audrey stays behind and tries to revive her as she tries to ask her who did it. Ambulance! Emergency. Yeah? <gasps> crazy, crazy, crazy mad love. It's crazy because you're madly in love. Cavendish. Is Cavendish no? Sleeping with the enemy? Anim- sleeping. You're not sleeping. Well, she's dead now. I don't know why this it keeps come happening. On, come on.
0: Close the airports. Search house to house. As God as my witness, I will find Nick and Audrey Spitz.
1: We see Detective Delacroix watching a cell phone video of them standing over the body and saying, come on, we got to get out of here, and they run away. And I'm thinking, wow, how convenient that this cell phone video was recorded at that exact moment and not for the apparent 15 minutes before that where they were chasing after the killer and she was trying to revive the victim. Once again, it's like... Surely he must have seen the rest of the video, and known that they didn't have a dart they could shoot at her, and that they... I mean, assuming that the onlooker started recording after she had already been shot, you still see them chasing after the robed figure, and you see Audrey trying to revive her. <laughs> no, these killers must be caught at all costs. He's hes convinced at this point. And it's just... and he's playing it straight. He's probably the straightest character in the film, De La Croix. He's... he's very very gravelly and very serious and he he's making the most absurdist insinuations of all the characters he's yes yes this this schlubby in over his head new yorker is clearly the uh, the prime suspect but i will say de la croix's smoothness was also the source of the one joke in the film that made me laugh out loud by myself and that was the scene where uh. he, this this was this was my this is this is a, a, a new segment of the show favorite joke it's, fa- it's, it's it's favorite joke corner.
0: I kid you not, I literally have a my favorite joke on my notes. I have my favorite <laughs> joke and I wrote my favorite joke. <laughs> Perfect.
1: This is all organized. We have, we have, we have planned on this segment. <laughs> my favorite joke corner. My favorite joke <laughs> is when De La Croix is sort of doing his little, you know, the, the famous, like the classic inspector speech of you're all suspects, etc.
0: Monsieur. My name is Inspector Laurent Delacroix. I will now summon you one by one to the Grand Lounge for questioning.
1: And then he he takes out his cigar and he goes, and he kind of puffs a little smoke ring and it floats forward. And Adam Sandler, he says, Why is that smoke ring so good? How did he do that? And then the character of Sergei, played by Olafur Dari Olafsson, I'm probably mispronouncing that, he's Icelandic, and he's super cool. He reaches over and touches the smoke ring and breaks it, and it kind of just puffs away. And it's all quiet, and Adam Sandler in the background says, Ah, uh, you broke it. You broke it. <laughs> and it's just... <laughs> getting upset at this bodyguard for touching the smoke ring and breaking it. It's like, ah, he ruined it. Like For some reason, just that <laughs> that line... It got an audible chuckle out of me just because it, 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 I think it was the perfect intersection of all of the potential elements of comedy that were left in this film, which were kind of bare bones at this point. You had Sandler being a very everyman schlub. You have this steely detective who's very cool. You've got yeah, he po puffs this perfect smoke ring. And Nick is just upset that the ring was ended too early. So, yeah, that's that's my favorite
0: joke. But what's your favorite joke? <laughs> Well, since we're here. <laughs> yeah, mine was just it was the uh, it was the line that that got a yeah, it's I mean it's not a high bar. <laughs> it's the line that got a <laughs> chuckle from me in this in this film. And that's when and Nick has a habit of lying to his wife. He's lying about being a detective to try and be more impressive. And then when he sees his buddy has got uh his I can't remember his wife or his girlfriend or whatever, a, a beautiful I think it's his wife, yeah, an anniversary mm-hmm. ring. And all all uh dripping with diamonds, as it were. And in order to one up or or at least, you know, keep up with the Joneses, he says, I
1: told you I had something big for you at dinner and you couldn't wait till tomorrow morning. No. We're finally going to Europe. Happy anniversary. Oh my god. I'm so Oh my god. Oh my god, I'm so i ruined your surprise.
0: Shh, you ruin anything, you're the greatest, you deserve it. I love you. I love you. Still a surprise, I swear. And that was <laughs> <laughs> just the kind of horror of what he's just agreed to. And that yeah. was yeah, that that was my that that's where Bo chuckled. <laughs> We should have given
1: timestamps for our listeners so that they could watch it and know the exact moment where you and I both laughed. If we
0: do our job <laughs> right, they may end up in the, in the episode.
1: Hey, hey, there you go. It, it, it is not entirely unsuccessful at what it tries to do. It's, it's a fun, easily digestible murder flick. It really doesn't demand much of you as a viewer. Probably the, le- the least demanding mystery film I've ever seen, if I'm being honest. It's very much a uh, just chill out and watch Sandler and his buddies make some silly jokes. And, and if you are a fan of dick jokes, gay jokes, etc., there, there is plenty of, of meat to chew on here. I'm sure there will be, well, no pun intended. Is that a pun? My word. <laughs> Anyways, Bo, listen, this brings me, this brings us to our next segment. Ooh,
0: is this my two truths and a lie? This is
1: your two truths and a lie, Bo. Okay. I'm going to quiz you to see if you can discern the truth. First, Luke Evans, who played Charles Cavendish, and Victor Turpin, who played the character Lorenzo, are a couple in real life. They are a couple together. Mm. Also, prior to being directed by Kyle Newacek, who is the director for this film. Prior to being directed by him, it was slated to be directed by none other than John Madden.
0: Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: Who'd have thought? And lastly, it shares a producer credit with George Clooney. Uh-huh. George Clooney produced this film, Bo. I need you to tell me at which point... I was lying. Wait, I can't figure out which which character is Lorenzo. Well, if I told you, that might spoil the
0: surprise, Bo.
1: <laughs> I see.
0: Right. Okay. Well, we'll just take this naturally then. That uh, option option A is the is Luke Evans' personal love life, right? Yes. Yeah. And I can't figure out which character you're referring to, so I'm I'm completely <laughs> shooting in the dark by that one. I do know that he is. I'm aware that that Luke Evans is, is gay. I knew that, but other than that, I have no idea mm-hmm. on that one. B is that John Madden was slated to direct, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which seems a bit unlikely. If George Clooney, God, you've really, I, I've, I've honed it. It could, it could be. Affected Yeah, this is, this is, this is your day. Uh, <laughs> I have. Okay, well, I'm going to say that uh, I, I don't think George Clooney was involved. I'll say that. I don't think he produced it. Dang! Oh, man, I really thought I had this one.
1: I really thought I had it in the bag. You were close. I could tell. You got it? Yeah, you got it. It wasn't produced by George Clooney. It was, however, produced by Charlize uh, Theron. Charlize well,
0: <laughs> Golly.
1: <laughs> I should have used that as a truth. I could have thrown you even better.
0: Yeah, that's, Charlize.
1: I wouldn't have guessed Charlize that. I, I was trying to think of an equivalent. Okay. Yeah, she she was a producer on this film. I tried to look up why. I could not find a reason. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why she helped produce it. Well, clearly she saw something in it that was that was appealing. So wait, uh,
0: uh, so Luke really is with the with who? <laughs>
1: Oh, the famous character Lorenzo, the beloved character from Murder Mystery. No, uh, yeah, so it's the, the actor Victor Turpin who played a character named Lorenzo. This was in the trivia. He he he's actually dating Victor Turpin who played Lorenzo. I w- I searched up and down. He is in the credits. Victor Turpin is in the film playing a character named Lorenzo. I didn't have <laughs> oh, time wait. to rewatch it. I see it now. I've just film. pulled
0: up I've just pulled up IMDb now. I'm scrolling through. Yeah, it's Victor Turpin as Lorenzo, uncredited, the very last actor listed in the cast list, after a bunch <laughs> yeah. of, after like waitress number two and hotel guest. You get Lorenzo. <laughs> So I tried to find
1: pictures of him in the film so I could establish which scene he was from, but I couldn't find anything, so I'm taking them at their word. I'm assuming m- maybe maybe it's less like, oh, neat piece of trivia, this guy, ha- they, these two happen to be dating. I see it more like maybe Luke Evans got his boyfriend a bit in this film as like an extra with a name. <laughs> That's...
0: Yeah, it must be something like that.
1: Uh, yeah, I could not find Lorenzo anywhere. Not in the script.
0: Or he anywhere. was on the set, so...
1: Yeah, he was there. The one I was really hoping would throw you was that it was originally going to be directed by John Madden because I thought... Gosh. I, I, I thought that you might think he was the football guy. That's what I thought when I first read it. I thought, oh. John Madden, isn't he dead? Isn't he a football guy?
0: But anyway, anyway, here's how you slice it. See, a lot of people don't know. You have to slice it down the middle. And then you slice it across this way. Because what it is, it's a it's a deboned chicken stuffed in a deboned duck, stuffed in a deboned turkey, with dressing between the chicken and the duck and the duck and the turkey. So as you cut down that way, you go turkey, dressing, duck, dressing, chicken.
1: But uh, then I realized that was the John Madden who directed Shakespeare in Love. Uh,
0: so that's a. Uh... Yeah, which is still a. Uh... I mean, that's quite surprising.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's he's got he's got a bit of clout. Oh, John Madden isn't dead; he's still alive. Football, John Madden. Good for him. <laughs> but yeah, no this, yeah, the other John Madden is is almost as surprising. But when I first read that, being the uncultured swine that I am, I thought, "Wow, John Madden!" So he got out of announcing, you know, broadcasting football games, and now he's going to direct. He almost directed a murder mystery film. So yeah, well played. Uh, you saw through my gambit, which. You know what I should have done? I should have said that it was produced by Charlie Theron, since you had a hard time believing that, and I should have said that it was going to be directed by the football John
0: Madden. Then that yeah, would really, go. that would have really thrown you. Y- you're learning, Chris. You'll get there. Indeed. Don't be too hard Indeed. on yourself. <laughs> all right, are we ready to move to our next film?
1: Let's jump into our next film. Yeah, for which I have prepared an exquisite synopsis. Not at all, Paul. Yeah, from... I'm really,
0: I'm really looking forward to this one. <laughs> So, yes, our next film, a Criterion film. Uh, Some of the Criterion films are rather obscure, and I would say this is one of the most obscure. This isn't a film that a lot of people have heard of. It's called, memorably, Green for Danger.
1: Why the devil is he only after
0: five of us here? That's what I want to know. Because you're the only people who seem to have been concerned with both murders. Simple when you think of it, isn't it? Green for Danger. From 1946, a British film. And yes, I I selected it because it is very solidly entrenched within the tropes of the genre of the murder mystery. It's got a couple different quirks to the setting, but it is essentially a classic detective drawing room mystery. And I suppose we can dive right into that uh, synopsis. Just let me uh, get my... Get my stopwatch ready here. Isn't there more you wanted to say, Bo? I mean... Uh, you're you're going to set the scene. That's, that's <laughs> this is your job. Right, right.
1: Yes. That is my job. Listen, uh, what if I just recap murder mystery for us real quick? <laughs> All right. Listen, I can do this. I was born for this. I thrive under pressure.
0: Okay. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a one, two, three, go. One, two, three. Three, go. Death and suspense abound in a hospital
1: and not just for the reasons you would think. Bombers fly overhead because it's World War Two a man who has been bombed is uh, is on the operating table and he inexplicably dies, but through mysterious circumstances. When they establish that it's a murder and then other people are also murdered, this strange detective, uh, Inspector Cockrell, shows up to solve the murder and question the suspects, leading to many
0: tense situations and whatnot. <laughs> 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 well, amazingly, given... Your blunder. You you did beat me. You're at thirty three seconds thirty three point six three seconds. Yes Now who's an amateur, Bo? <laughs> <laughs> I especially like the point where you said that a character was bombed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's the official hospital terminology. What's this patient's problem? I'm afraid he was bombed. <laughs> Doctor, he's a classic case of bombing <laughs> <laughs> oh. all all prepared in advance well, of course meticulously meticulously selected
0: words well we did <laughs> I, I think yeah you you covered you covered the bones of it all it's right. a it's a hospital drama come murder mystery you've got uh, uh, someone who who dies on the operating table We've got a, a gaggle of, of doctors and nurses with their complicated interpersonal relationships, mm-hmm. and into it all comes a, a detective to root through their lives and discover who done it. Here I was thinking that
1: Grey's Anatomy was the first one to pioneer the interpersonal hospital drama, and these guys were nailing it back in 46. There's a, yeah. all kinds of torrid love affairs and... And yeah, lots of backbiting and whatnot. It is It is a great setting for a murder mystery. That's. I feel like that's probably one of the most unique catches of this film is that it's a murder mystery that takes place in a hospital surrounding a death that in other circumstances could easily be explained as complications, you know?
0: Uh, I, I'm going to be a little, I'm going to be doubly unorthodox. I'm going to Ooh. jump right into the two truths and a lie because I think it fits right here at the startup. Ah. And also my two truths and a lie is this time not two truths and a lie. Uh, This time it's Uh, just a simple fill in the blank. One answer is correct. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Okay. The killer was blank. Um, Tenacious. The answer was tenacious. Were you watching? Yeah. Yeah. Green for danger was, was uh, actually the first film to be made in England's, famous Pinewood Studios. Pinewood Studios is where uh, Powell and Pressburger made a lot of their films. We've talked about ah, two of right. those so far. Yeah, And more yeah, but, and this is the first one to be filmed there after it was reopened uh, at the conclusion of the Second World War. Ooh. And a little bit of trivia here. The entire Pinewood lot was taken up. This is from... I got this uh, information from Turner, Turner Classic Movies. They took up the entire... Pinewood Studios, which is, you know, even for the exteriors, it was all done inside the studio, wow. uh, which was an expensive way to shoot it and even more expensive and time-saving in a way, I suppose. They, rather than build the set in such a way that they could catch the reverse shots and move around and do that when they uh, – the the operating uh, theater where they where a few pivotal scenes take place, they simply uh-huh. built two mirror <laughs> – sets so that when they needed the reverse shot rather than like move the camera to the other side and fix the walls and everything, they just moved the camera over a few feet to where they had the reverse set and had the actors go set up in reverse over there and just shoot it that way. (laughs) Is that (laughs) time-saving? Is that, that seems a bit impractical if I'm being honest. (laughs) And and this, this, was funded by the by the J. Arthur Rank organization, which uh, was the the money behind so many of Paul and Pressburger's big hits. So we've got a lot of ties in here. And this story, as I understand it, had actually been rejected by by the production company. The 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 green for danger sorry I should say is based on a novel and the novel had mm. been kind of deemed as unsuitable lackluster for the story, but mm. the director Sidney Gillette or Gillot or Gillett I'm not sure exactly how his name is pronounced but he okay, it's not he just has me. a he has a lot of uh, fine British films to his credit especially some of these comedies and especially some with with uh, Alister Sim who plays Inspector Cockrell in this film. But anyway, here, here is my, here's my uh, quiz for you, Chris. What I have here is a quote from the director. And I'm going to give you three options of how that quote ends. So mm. here we go. The novel by Christina Brand had not been recommended as film material by the story department of the Rank Organization. And I bought a copy at the Victoria Station just to while away a journey. I was not attracted by the detective, Inspector Cockrell, who, though by no means as dull a plotter as Inspector French, did not exhibit very much in the way of Ilan, nor particularly fascinated by the hospital setting, then still held by many distributors as death in the box office. No, what appealed to me was the, and here come your choices. Oh, gosh. So what appealed to him, what attracted him to the story was the A, anesthetics, the rhythmic ritual with all those cross-cutting opportunities offered by flow meters, hissing gas cylinders, palpitating rubber bags, and all the other trappings.
1: Mm, Very robust. Or
0: B, B, what appealed to me was the love triangle at the heart of the motives, two very different doctors, one with an easy but heartless grace, the other honest and straight but under a cloud of suspicion. Mm. Or C. What appealed to me was the audacity of having the blitz on the edges of the story, a meaty and taut drama, but all the while the looming threat of a fatal blast as if from the heavens to thrash it all away. Dang.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to say right now, after that first one, I was hoping it would be very obvious that, like, (laughs) that first one was so robust, I was thinking the next one would be the love triangle and the bombings. (laughs) What appealed to me was mostly the bombings.
0: It's almost as if I designed these answers (laughs) to seem plausible.
1: Mm, Well played. Well played, (laughs) Bo. Um, geez. Okay. Anesthetics, a love triangle, or the Blitz? You know, it's funny. (laughs) I've seen the movie twice now, and it, it didn't even cross my mind the contrast between Eden and Barnes. That... One of them was honest and under suspicion. The other was kind of shady and, you know, kind of inverse. Uh, that's actually, I didn't notice that, but that's a very real possibility. And I know that for me, the main appeal was, of course, the bombings. I found the Blitz scenario to be very interesting. Anesthetics. What can you do with that, really? I mean, I mean, they clearly, they did a lot with it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say the Blitz, because I haven't really seen many murder mysteries. I've, I've seen murder mysteries with a love triangle. And granted, I haven't seen any with anesthetic, but I couldn't see the draw until now, really. But I haven't seen many murder mysteries with the Blitz. And I'm assuming that Mr. Sidney Gillette and I are very
0: similar people. I can only assume that he has the same interests as me. Well, your answer is C. And Chris, the correct answer is... (gasps) A. Anesthetics. (laughs) (laughs) What?! Yes, the quote. The quote goes, "No, what appealed to me was the anesthetics, the rhythmic ritual, with all those cross-cutting opportunities offered by flow meters, hissing gas cylinders, palpitating rubber bags, and all the other trappings." The cylinders—that is what appealed oh, yes. to him. That's
1: that's incredible.
0: That's what brought him into this story.
1: <laughs> that that. To me, that's like if Steven Spielberg said that when he started up Indiana Jones, he was like, no, what, what appealed to me wasn't so much the, the swashbuckling, the ancient relics, the whips, the Nazis. What really got me going was that fedora. <laughs> I was like, I have to tell this story. <laughs> that's crazy to me. I mean, clearly he knew. I'm glad that he saw the appeal because the anesthetic sequences were some of the tensest moments in the movie kudos to him but that's not where my, that's not where my mind would have gone reading that story
0: i i too was surprised you know i think personally that i mean aside from a lot of fine acting by various members of the cast i think a lot of what really carries this film is how much fun we have watching inspector cockrell even though he doesn't come in till relatively late in the story yeah and, you know, I easily could have seen this quote as finishing with that's what appealed to him was the idea that of getting his buddy, the Scottish actor, Alistair Sim, to come in and play Inspector Cockrell. Inspector, you said both murders. Hmm, Sister Bates and what's his name, Higgins. Who said Higgins was murdered? Well, Sister Bates herself for one last night. I understood you were there, Dr. Barnes. Yes, but I didn't realize that didn't she knew. You? What about the Higgins mortem? Completely negative.
1: But why should anyone want to murder Higgins? Hmm.
0: My dear young lady, how should I know? I've only just got here. But no, it, yeah. what really appealed to him was all this this gadgetry. Which, as you say, you know, those are some of the big uh, set pieces of the film, and they do yeah yeah he does use them to advantage, and it does the mystery turns on those cylinders. And the title of the movie and many other things are all wrapped up in there. So it certainly is an important aspect of the film, but perhaps a surprising motivation for wanting to tell the story.
1: That is that is fascinating. I, I wonder, I'm almost curious to read the book now and see if Inspector Cockrell was as fascinating a character in the book as he was in the movie, or if that was something that that Alistair Sim and Sidney Gillette, Gillette Brought to the to the table, if it was you know get them putting their own little bit of mustard on it, because yeah, I mean the mystery itself is very tantalizing. I was uh, I I was genuinely wondering who it could be, why they would have done it, but it, by the end of it, I was mostly just fascinated with with Alistair Sims' performance with Inspector Cockrell, and I, I mean as I've said before, I'm pretty fresh to the more cultured side of murder mysteries. I'm not I am not intimately familiar with Agatha Christie's work with a lot of these other well-established characters. I'm familiar with a lot of the tropes and whatnot. I, I, I wouldn't have thought that in a setting like this that the inspector, the guy whose job it is to basically question people... You know, I mean, usually, in my mind, in, in a murder mystery, it's almost like the audience is experiencing it vicariously through the inspector, and we're now being exposed to a variety of colorful personalities and trying to solve the case with them. Whereas in this case... Cockrell was as much a character as the suspects, if not more so. In fact, yes, definitely more so. A lot of the suspects were quite straight-laced, comparatively. And at the same time, he wasn't exactly like... I mean, he wasn't Ace Ventura pet detective. He wasn't chewing the scenery and jumping around being a goofball, but he's definitely got a presence to him and a bizarre affect.
0: We are dealing with two premeditated murders. Can anyone tell me anything they think I ought to know? If so, now is the time. We'll pause for 30 seconds while you cook up your alibis. Did you get us here, Justin Salter?s yeah. I only like to strike an informal note. You're mentioning, you know, these other... Well, that it clearly follows the tropes, and it certainly does. You know, it gives us a lot of, a lot of drama. Um, every character, you know, well, every main character is given means and motives so that we can, right up until the very last, we're jumping back and forth in our minds. Is it this guy? Is it this guy? Is Is it this gal? You know who 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 did it? But and one of the one of the staples of that, and I, I, like I say, something that raises this story is the eccentricities of the detective. And this is kind of mm-hmm. a, a trope that maybe you aren't as familiar with if you haven't read Agatha Christie. But well, I think you would be. I mean, it's like you take Monk, you take Columbo, you take mm. Sean Spencer uh, from Psych, Hercule, Hercule Poirot. You take yeah, you take Psych. Yes, yeah. I mean, all of them. They they all have you take what what you get is a story that's essentially kind of a little soap opera. They're usually a, a soap opera. You know, there's petty jealousies and the, it's it and it's written usually at about that level, the yeah. level of a little. It's a it's a melodramatic soap opera scene, and then into it you insert a detective. And the key to the most popular of these is that the detective has a bunch of eccentricities about him that make him or her fascinating and give gives elevate the the story to something that is going to be very memorable. And in this case, yeah. you know, with Hercule Poirot, you have his arrogance and his mustaches. You know, we all we know all about the quirks of Sherlock Holmes, you know, there's Monk with his with his OCD and everybody's got their thick Columbo with his excessive politeness and and what we have here with inspector Cockrell is alistair sim at his best i i love watching <laughs> alistair sim he's got that lilting sort of cadence to his voice that's a, that's an uncanny music and he's yeah. sort of brashly amused and superior and sly but not necessarily courageous and he he also approaches these you know, like Sherlock, he he sees a case with apparent relish, with almost a morbid and inappropriate sense of fun because yeah. of what it because it yields him. He's not callous, he's not heartless, but he is. He, but he leans a little bit in that direction. You know, for him, it is yeah. very much a job, and it's a job that he enjoys, and he's and he's glad if. There are some complications that make it a bit more juicy for him.
1: Yeah, he has—he has a morbid fascination with the subject and isn't afraid to to display it. He's—he uh, gets these little twinkles in his eye when these when these unsettling developments happen. There's a moment when doctors Eden and Barnes get into a fist fight.
0: And you never told me. I saw no point in making things more difficult to myself than they already were. <laughs> Do you expect him to believe that? He might prefer the truth to your jealous suspicions. Hendrix don't interfere
1: and Inspector Cockrell he sort of just watches with this gleeful fascination and grabs a chair and kind of sits on it reverse style he just kind of watches like no no let him let him let him fight this is uh this is fun
0: well 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 a master of surgery mixing it with an LRCP (laughs) what a delicious spectacle We might arrange a future contest in aid of some deserving charity, don't you think?
1: (laughs) Perhaps the police orphanage, Inspector. (laughs) Yeah, it's like everything is this... It's like the whole murder case is this feast that he's savoring, you know? It's like every bite is just... Let that sit for a bit before I swallow, kind of thing. And his appearance—I don't. This isn't. This is not meant to be a knock on Alistair Sim. Although I'm sure he's aware, having played Ebenezer Scrooge. There's there's a gauntness to him. He looks almost. There's times where he almost yeah. looks like death itself, like <laughs> as if as if the Grim Reaper has come to collect, but also wants to hang out and check out the sights a little bit first. You know, he's
0: yeah, a- as <laughs> affable as he can be. His grin. Uh, there's something sinister in it.
1: Yeah, he almost. I mean, he almost looks like he's in makeup in some of the classic 1930s monster movies. Like he's Nosferatu almost, you know, it's like,
0: yeah. And And I think he, I think he leans into it. I think he leans into it because, you know, in so many of his movies, I mean, even though he is, he's not Cary Grant and he's balding and so on, but they certainly go to the times when his hair is kind of sticking out on end and he's disheveled. Like they're clearly Mm -hmm. not trying to, Hide the fact that he's got a very, uh, well, yeah, distinct look about him.
1: Something I love about his character—you've po- you've pointed it out—he's he's very kind of—I don't know if if arrogant is the right word—but he's very very cocksure. He's very he's very confident and kind of gleeful in this process. But at the same time, he's not courageous. There are moments multiple moments throughout the film where he displays a bit of cowardice, which is actually one of my favorite motifs in the film. I've already said this once is the blitz, the ongoing blitz, this juxtaposition of, of bombers flying overhead. Mm -hmm. And even during operations, everyone sort of stops and looks up wondering if this is going to be one that drops a bomb on them. Sort of this, it it, it sort of creates this atmosphere of uncertainty and fear throughout everything, which is a great, great background for a murder mystery of just like, who's going to
0: die. Am I going to die? And also a fascinating choice given the time. I mean, the Blitz was not some far off thing. Yeah. You know, this is right as the war has ended. It is sort of startling because it's, an, it's certainly an escapist film. You know, it's not trying to say anything profound. It's a, it's a piece of entertainment. Yeah. And yet, and it has its, its funny moments and so on. And yet in all of that, they're choosing the setting of the Blitz, which had, which had just just happened people had just died from this sort of thing it's almost in a way it's it's almost like setting a A murder mystery comedy against the boston bombings or something like (laughs) oh yeah i was gonna say or against like 9-11 uh you just uh, uh, like maybe two years after it happened yeah it's, it's a bizarre choice but it certainly adds yeah like you say as sort of it an ominous overshadow to the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine the discomfort or or potential distaste people might have had seeing it in theaters at the time. But I'm grateful that they did it the way they did for, for our benefit in the future with the benefit of a little bit more distance between ourselves and the events that it depicts. Because it's, yeah, it's a fascinating scenario for... For all of this to take place. I mean, it, it's fascinating enough to have a murder mystery take place in a hospital where death must be at least somewhat commonplace, but then to have it also juxtaposed against yeah, this this very tense situation that happened in World War II. But yeah, going back a bit, uh, Alistair Sim, Inspector Cockrell, there are moments where he'll be kind of walking along with this sort of confident but awkward gait, and then suddenly he hears the bombs.
0: From time to time, one of those infernal devices roared overhead. Trifles, of course, did not for a moment distract me from my purpose.
1: And then he'll kind of, he'll sort of, sort of like run and duck and hide and stuff, and he'll trip over things. And you don't, you don't get the the sense that he welcomes death. You know, you don't get the sense that he is like <laughs> this untouchable, un, you know, ineffable, unfaffable character who, who, who can take anything. He's very much, he's just as scared as anybody else. But he also has this this morbid passion for his work.
0: Yeah, he he has a he has a brain for the job and not an astounding one by the way. I mean, he is clever and he solves yeah. it, but it's not as though he's a Sherlock Holmes who can, you know, spot a crumb on someone's left sleeve and deduce what it was they had for breakfast 3 weeks ago. Yeah, uh, but uh, and also, unlike Sherlock Holmes, he doesn't he's not going to go rushing in with guns blazing or or tackle the bad guy in a in a knife fight, if necessary, to save some maiden in distress, you know, he's much more likely to, <laughs> to, yeah, seek self-preservation.
1: Exactly. It, it makes for a really fun, for, a, it, he makes for such a fun, I'm going to keep saying the word juxtaposition. There's going to be a, another, I'm going to like pull up my thesaurus. It's a fun contrast to the, uh, to the rest of the characters and the overall seriousness of the situation. And it's kind of funny, as we're talking, I'm looking at these other, I'm looking at photos these promotional photos from the set and there's one of Alistair Sim being lit very ominously staring into the camera he looks like Victor you know Boris Karloff and then you've got this other one that reminds me this pose where he sits on the chair in the in in some of these rooms these little stools and he sort of holds his briefcase against himself like uh, kind of yeah. curling his arms over it like a child holding a teddy bear almost you know it like a security blanket it's it's just very very It's not what you would expect. It's such a strange mishmash of character traits of these extreme confidences and insecurities all at the same time. And I I think it kind of, for me, it kind of comes full circle at the end. I I think we've actually done a great job so far, not spoiling the mysteries of these murder mysteries. And I don't think um, if we play our cards, right, I don't think we will. Um, No, but uh, at the end of the film, Cockrell is taken by surprise substantially. A character reveals to him that because of his behavior, somebody else has died. Have you forgotten those tablets?
0: I have not, and neither I imagine that you forget them. They killed Esther. A lethal dose self-administered. So? I wanted to be ready, but you came over to me and I was too late to stop it. Yes, Inspector, that was the antidote. The Antidote? And, what? and you knocked it out of my hand.
1: Like it's 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 this very like he's clearly sh- you know shaken by it and he's he's sort of taken aback and it's fun to see this character who until this moment has been relishing and enjoying every instant to be just as confused and scared and freaked out as the other characters and you know in this instance the film does not shy away from that there's they have no qualms about letting us know what a flawed and strange character
0: he is yeah and it's the the contrast as you put up is. You know, against our expectations, also works, of course, against the rest of the film, because it is a bit of a melodrama. And I wouldn't call it especially especially a wonderful one. If we'd had a lesser detective come in, I think this film wouldn't be a terrible film, but it yeah. it certainly wouldn't be one that is worth a lot of time to and thinking of. Let, let's put it this way. I think I think we get good acting from Sally Gray as as Nurse Lenley, Trevor Howard as as Doctor Barnes, you know, he's always a fine actor and he and he plays the Love part Trevor well. How- and and Leo yeah. Leo Jen gets to play uh Mr. Eden, the surgeon. Uh, he he's he's a complex character, he's fun, he's got a, a melodious voice and He's yeah. uh, suave and kind of two steps ahead of everybody, and slightly dastardly, and you don't quite know what what you think of him. And mm-hmm. those are the three involved in the in the love triangle. And then at the edges, we have these other nurses. Some of them rather shrill and hysterical, others of them a bit innocuous, and they're all wrapped up in this in this little drama that happens to include a murder, but really, really uh, involves the love lives of these of these characters Uh, and really of these, of these two doctors, these two doctors and the women they love is kind of the, the meat of it. And uh, I personally feel that the acting is, is like I say, is, is fine work. And we get some lovely moments with some expressionist shadows and photography, I think in particular of the scene when, the second murder victim is running to this cabinet mm-hmm, to find mm-hmm. to to find something, and she enters through and there's these sort of ominous flashing lights and the and the windows and doors are fluttering, bringing in alternately shadow and light in a in a way that creates a sort of grisly setup for the for the second murder, the murder that really is at the, at the heart of the actual mystery that the inspector is called in to solve. Yeah. And So, yeah, yeah, you get some... I guess what I'm trying to say is that it is not a bad drama. There's not bad acting. There are interesting scenes. And yet, for me, so much of what is, is really memorable... Comes from the way that, Alistair Sim plays into to all of it. You know, yeah. Together with the the bombs and the drama and the photography, he's right there is the sort of linchpin that makes it all work.
1: Agreed. Yeah, I feel the same way. Especially considering it, it really it really was like he was the meat and potatoes. Like as interesting as like you said as as interesting as the setting was, I feel like this mystery could have been set virtually anywhere. Under any circumstance, and if he was the detective for in that story, I probably would have enjoyed it about as much as I did this one. like I don't i I, I think that uh, he really was the main draw.
0: I was just going to say that I think you put it much more succinctly than I just did. and that's yes as 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 enjoyable as this movie was. And some people have complained, too, that the first half of the movie is a bit dry because it's a while before the inspector comes in, yeah, yeah, but as. As serviceable and even enjoyable as the movie might have been, yeah, I think the the one that we want to follow after this is The Inspector. And I would trust any movie that featured Inspector Cockrell, played by Sim, to be worth my time. And that's what I would want yeah. to see. You know, I don't, I wouldn't be going for, oh, are or, or any of these other characters returning or anything like that? No, I just want to follow Inspector Cockrell to see what he's going to do next. Exactly.
1: And and it's interesting because the as as this film kind of reaches its conclusion again I'm gonna try my darndest to not spoil things because. There's a decent chance that our listeners won't have seen either of these films, and it's always fun to go blind into a mystery film. As, as we get to the conclusion, you know, I, I feel like it's it's kind of a, a flip of the coin with a, with a murder mystery film as to how silly you feel for not having seen it, you know, um, seen the conclusion ahead of time. You know, it's like, oh, of course, all the pieces were there. And in this film, I felt that way about the how, but not as much about the why. The motive, I think... Mm. What wasn't very, wasn't very well forecasted, wasn't very well foreshadowed. And when the reveal came, I was, I was really interested in, in how the murder was achieved, but it, it kind of fell flat for me as far as the, the motive of the, of the killer. Similarly, the, uh, there, there's a moment, there's a moment in the film, which in hindsight bothers me. And, and it's something I've seen in, in quite a few films, more films than I'd like to have seen where a character with a secret A a character is harboring a dark secret, you know, obviously, this is a murder mystery. There are moments in movies, and I'll use, obviously I'll use this one as the example right now, where a character has a dark secret that, by themselves, if they were alone and knew no one else was watching, they would behave differently. Which is why I think a lot of murder mystery films tend to avoid moments where characters are completely alone usually they're being observed by someone else they're having conversations with other people or the 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 few glimpses we get of them by themselves are fleeting and we don't we don't get a lot of time to determine what's going on inside their heads in this film there is a scene where a character kind of enters a situation it's gonna be, it's so hard to describe the setting basically a character almost dies and another character saves that character and the behavior of this character who holds a dark secret, once you re-watch the film and you watch that scene again, there's really no hint at all in that scene that this character was harboring the secret that they were harboring. That they they act as a person completely innocent and free of, of said secret. To give a, a, a much more simple example, I'll use Disney's Frozen there's, I'm sure everybody who listens to this has seen it, there's a character named Hans in Frozen who is secretly a bad guy. We get the reveal about three-fourths of the way through the film that he's a mastermind who's been scheming to take the kingdom and stuff. But there is a moment early in the film where Hans meets Anna, the uh, one of the princess characters, and they flirt a little bit. And then he ends up getting knocked into the water under a boat as she runs off. And then we get this moment, this lingering shot of him lifting the boat up to watch her leave and gets this kind of wistful, boyish, charming smile of like, man, she's great. Kind of this very, very adoring kind of smile. Whereas it wouldn't have taken much to just omit that shot entirely, because in reality, I don't think his character would have made that face. I think his character would have kind of looked at her with, Kind of like, ah, yes, the perfect mark, you know, like. So you get these moments where characters act innocent, even when nobody else is watching. And it feels a bit cheap to me. It feels, it feels a little bit. I like it when a movie sprinkles clues throughout, where when you go back and watch and you say, oh, this character really did seem a bit disinterested, or they did seem like they had something going on under the surface or whatnot.
0: I think in the tradition of maybe some of the fun but lesser murder mysteries this movie does it's it's contrived Mm -hmm. it's it's contrived to keep us guessing till the end and that's going that includes in this case a few little absurdities i don't think that they get hugely in the way of enjoying the film but it does create some sort of preposterous situations to sort of artificially prop up the idea that it could be any one of these people Right until the very end. But it's done with a bit more, you know, everybody's playing it straight and the actors are swell and the directing is swell. So we don't get like the murder mystery, the Adam Sandler film. We don't get, but it doesn't come across quite as hokey. We sort of know that this is, even though it's taking it much more seriously, we still the The film isn't afraid to let us know that it's that it's escapist fare. You know, it's all a bit of yeah of good yeah. fun. the The stakes in the film are high, and there are characters that we feel for and moments that may be tense. But it's still at the end of the day, it's everybody's gathered into a room at the end, and the inspector says, "One of you is the murderer." You know, it's um, yeah, which is not something that you can really stretch into. You have to suspend disbelief in order for it to work, yeah, even if you yeah. don't have to suspend it as much nearly as much as you would for something like Adam Sandler's film to work
1: well, you know i mean i've got I've got no regrets this like it's i have I haven't seen a ton of murder mystery films, surprisingly, although clearly i i mean I feel silly in hindsight as you're mentioning monk and and all these other detective shows, many of which I've seen. It's like, of course, I've seen a lot of murder mysteries just in, in a more digestible, small television format. And there have been plenty of eccentric. Yeah,
0: detectives. I think the, the TV format works really well for it because it's like I say, with these detective-centric mysteries, you really want to just follow the detective into his next set of characters. And that's what you really care about. And so yeah. to be able to produce shorter format, cheaper stories as TV allows gives you that pleasure of just following the detective into a new story again and again and again.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, looking it up it seems like this was Alistair's one take on Cockrell, right? He never made another one with
0: that mm. character.
1: Which seems like a, yeah, he, a, a sorry waste.
0: He, yeah, he he played a a detective a couple times, but this was, you know, the one it was one and done for Inspector Cockrell. It's a which, shame. What a name yeah, by the is. way. <laughs> yeah, Inspector Cockrell.
1: He was a fantastic character that elevated, you know, it, it's funny because this film and Murder Mystery, I mean we've said it before, but they're both fairly by the numbers, they're both fairly tropey, they both neither of them treads particularly groundbreaking territory when it comes to the murder mystery genre, but I mean, hey, well let's jump right into let's just jump right into who did it better. Our our little uh, our fun regular segment, who did it better? I will say yeah. So to kind of, yeah, to kind of pull it into who did it better here, I'm just going to go ahead and say right off the bat, both films, as I said, are kind of a little bit tropey, a little bit by the numbers, but what elevates Green for Danger above Murder Mystery is it's, it's detective. I would, uh, any day of the week, gun to my head or no gun to my head, I would choose Inspector Cockrell <laughs> over Nick Spitz any day of the week. <laughs> In fact, I feel like the film *Murder Mystery*. It, we, we, we've sometimes done cast swapping on this on this podcast. I would I would easily drop Cockrell into *Murder Mystery*, and I think it would make that film infinitely more enjoyable and compelling to watch him try to solve that same mystery. Because again, I mean, yes. he, could, he could solve a mystery of who took the cookie from the cookie jar, and it would still be a fantastic little little romp. So yeah, that's a, that's a leg up that I think *Green for Danger* has. Uh, as for my own personal take on murder mystery being better. I think I think murder mystery shot more appealing locations. It's kind of an easy, that's 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 low hanging fruit for me, but <laughs> clearly, clearly, it was an important point to them that they they shoot at some very pretty locales and mission accomplished. I'd say if there's one thing they got unequivocally right, it was shooting some
0: very pretty locations in, in Europe. So And I'd say Murder Mystery definitely does a better job at selling Claritin. <laughs> <laughs> I Indeed. don't know how much money I don't know how much money they were Claritin was shelling out for that movie, but it had to have been a substantial amount.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially to throw Allegra under the bus. Maybe that's Allegra. You said you're packed Claritin. That's the same thing. No, honey. I, I, Allegra doesn't work for me.
0: Oh. Okay. When we get to Monaco, I'll get you your Claritin. It's
1: not. You're not. It's going to be called something else over there. I'm telling you. Just remember, we uh, the blue box. You know, Allegra in, in uh, French means the same shit as Claritin. <laughs> What's strange but I think. I think the only other product placement I've seen that was more overt than that was in the Sonic to Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog film, where people say like. Let's go to the Olive Garden. Their bottomless bread bowl is bottomless, or their their bottomless pasta bowl is delicious. I can't wait to go to Olive Garden. I mean, uh, kudos for not trying to hide it. I guess. <laughs> yeah, it takes a level of boldness. But yeah, all, all in all, I'd say it was a, this was a fun this was a fun pairing. You know, it's uh, it's not often that we're able to find a Criterion and streaming original that interlink so neatly. You know, thematically. Sometimes we have to do some stretches of the imagination. I'm sure that throughout this season there are going to be some that have a more tenuous connection than this one. So enjoy it while you can, listeners. <laughs> you're, you're, you're sure to be through some tough times as far as connecting the films together.
0: I'm glad to to visit some perhaps lesser known films and to get get a good good traditional dose of who done it in our in our podcast at last. Indeed. Here on whatever episode we're we're in in our second season. <laughs> We're not even
1: I'm not even going to try to number these episodes anymore because <laughs> it's anyone's guess at this point.
0: When no, who knows? It's going to
1: be it's going to be a fun season. Stay tuned. We're going to have uh, I'm going to go ahead and promise fantastic guests even if we don't have any lined up yet. They're going to blow your minds. Get ready to to see some incredible celebrities. There are rumors.
0: You're really cementing this is the first episode of the season.
1: Or is it <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> or have you been in season two for a while now? Go back and listen to this
1: podcast. You will find clues everywhere. This was, in fact, the second episode of the season. Oh, I've, I've covered our ass. We are now good to release this at any point, and and either way, we are we are masters of our craft. All right, Bo. Well, listen. Oh goodness. Uh, don't don't go don't go murdering anybody well, between now and the next episode. Okay.